0: running from God. I knew that God was calling me to return and to surrender. In fact, one night I vividly recall, it was in the spring of 98, that I had an overwhelming, even convicting and dreadful sense of just how immense God is. It was as if in that moment God spoke to me and he said, why are you running? Stop running. It was almost an audible voice. And yet I kept running, fearful, until the summer of 98. Usually, you know, these kind of stories aren't, aren't profitable for us unless, unless we recognize God's grace to us in the midst of them. And it was during that weekend in the summer of 98 that God used an experiencing God weekend to confront my sin. And I was broken. I repented of my sin. I, I stopped running from God I repented of living for self, and I returned to God. You know, I was a scoundrel. I was undeserving of God's grace for the atrocities of my sin. I was in a dark and a desperate place, and yet God met me there, and he shined his glorious light of hope on me, and he forgave me for my waywardness, and he forgave me for my fleshly indulgences. And now, looking back from over 20 years ago, I'm amazed at God's grace to me. I'm amazed that God would call me a wretched sinner to preach his gospel and to carry this very message of hope to those who are without hope. To look at the text of Scripture, I I love the Old Testament narrative because in the Old Testament, we can enter into the story. We we can see the parallels between our lives and the, the lives of Old Testament characters, characters such as Jacob, When he finds himself alone in a dark and a desperate place and God comes to him, meets him there. This morning as we look at Jacob's transformation, I want us to see in the midst of his journey of faith that just as God works through his life, that God works through all of our life circumstances to grow and to perfect our faith. In fact, God is even doing that now in each of our lives. For those who, who are Christians, who are believers in Christ, God is at work growing and perfecting us even through the tribulation or trials we walk through. So beginning in verse 10 and verse of chapter 28, I want to invite you to follow along as I read. <clears throat> Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He's running from his brother. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. In other words, it got dark on him, and he couldn't travel anymore. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. and Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God. The God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it And he was afraid and he said how awesome is this place this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. Jacob's story is is one that teaches us how to live with dependence on God through tribulation. It teaches us how, in the midst of tribulation, God's, God's work actually brings about transformation in our lives. In fact, over the next 20 years, Jacob will learn the promise of God's presence doesn't equal the promise of a life of ease. You know, he'll suffer many hardships on the journey as he's as he's going over the next 20 years, but ultimately, each of these hardships and all of the hardships that he's walking through, he's learning as he reflects back that they work together for his growth. If we fast forward to Genesis chapter 31 verses 38 through 42, we kind of get a, a view of Jacob looking back at this season of life that he's entering into. He says, these 20 years, verse, chapter 31, verse 38 through 42, these 20 years I've been with you, speaking to Laban, his father-in-law. Your ewes, and your, your, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I've not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and in the cold by night my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. You hear that? He looks back and he says, if the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the fear of my father Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Translation, God's with me. He's been with me. He's not left me. He says, God saw my affliction, verse 42, and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Jacob describes his 20 years in exile as a time when he experienced physical afflictions. He was wronged endlessly by Laban, even while God was with him. God allows his saints to develop spiritual graces such as faith and perseverance and character and and hope, even while we're living for him and he is living with us. In Romans 5, Paul speaks from a Christian worldview. In chapter 5, verse 3, not only, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that from suffering, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out or poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, we see this so often in our own faith journey, don't we? That tribulation teaches us dependence on God, and it it works deep within us to bring about transformation, you know, it could be through bearing up under a tyrannical boss. It could be through dealing with co-workers in the workplace and being greatly humbled. You know, it could be it could be living in present in the present with the the consequences of past sin or living in the present under sin and then under God's discipline. It could be dealing with emotional trauma from within our own family from from death of a loved one to unfaithfulness of a spouse to wayward children to unbelieving spouse to infertility. The list could go on and on, even to being raised by hard, difficult parents growing up. Listen, tribulation isn't foreign to God's people. And I would say to us this morning, if we're in the midst, if you're in the midst of tribulation or or even in the midst of desperate circumstances, the Jacob story suggests for those who are called by God that God is at work even in the midst of our tribulation. He's at work refining us. He's growing us. And the story, it it exhorts us to dependence on God. It exhorts us to, to faithful and persistent prayer. We must turn to God in prayer, just as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Give us this day our our daily bread, right? Jesus teaches us how to pray. So we find Jacob in the midst of crisis and desperation and uncertainty. In verses 10 through 11, this this is Jacob's story. He's in the throes of tribulation, like a boat being tossed about by the sea. He's on the run. His father has given him the blessing, even though he tricked his father into doing it. And now Isaac has sent him out of his homeland, sent him to Badan Aram, to Bethuel, to his uncle Laban's house, in order to find a wife from his his mother's brother. You know, but he's also left home for another reason, right? The other reason he left home is because his brother wants to kill him. In fact, he intends to comfort himself by killing him. One commentator, Bruce Waltke, he describes it like this. He says, Back in Beersheba, Esau lies in wait like an angry lion. Ahead in Haran, Laban waits with his spider web to trap and suck the life from his victims. Both, Both are ominous possibilities. Both are difficult circumstances. And in the midst of what seems to be a hopeless situation, he settles down for the night alone in a dark and desperate place both figuratively and literally. His manipulative tactics, his destructive ways have finally caught up with him, and he faces an uncertain future. Have you ever had the experience of something weighing heavy on your mind throughout the day, before you go to bed maybe, and then you wake up the next morning, and you find that all through the night, you actually dreamed about that very thing that was on your mind throughout the night? Think that's a common malady for humanity. When we go to bed stressed about something or with something heavy on our mind, oftentimes we dream about it, and it may not be the answer that we're looking for. In fact, most oftentimes the dreams we have are kind of so far out there, you know, our minds may be working through something. Perhaps as Jacob travels alone, he's come to this place of darkness and of desperation. And maybe he's wondering if the blessing that Isaac, his father, spoke over him was true. Maybe he's wondering if this promised covenant that his grandfather Abraham had talked about and that Isaac has talked about is, is really going to pass on to him. Will it actually be true? Up to this point, he hasn't shown any sign of possessing his father's faith. All we've seen from Jacob is that he's a deceiver, he's a manipulator, he's a swindler. And so questions and doubts must have filled his mind. He was in crisis mode, kind of at a crossroads in life. How did he get here? What's the next step? He's doubting God. He's uncertain and fearful of what lies ahead. He's running from his father, and he doesn't know what he's running to. Can you identify with Jacob in any of these points? maybe in past, maybe presently, you know, oftentimes when we find ourselves in crisis or a desperate place, we encounter God's grace in a magnificent way. And this is exactly what happens to Jacob. Jacob encounters God's transforming presence. In verses 12 through 15, while he sleeps for the night, he has a dream. And in verses twelve and thirteen, in this dream, he has he sees these three images. And these three images he sees reveal truth about God and about his presence with his people. It's here, in this certain place that he's arrived, in this dark and desperate place. It's here that God makes his presence known to Jacob. First, the ladder linking heaven and earth. Second, the angels going up and down, ascending and descending the ladder, and then third, the Lord Himself. I want you to hear this. Like every person who encounters the transforming truth of the gospel, this, tr- this dream shows Jacob an alternative to the life that he's been living. It's a hopeful future with God. That's what he sees in the midst of this dream, that there is a hopeful future with God. Most commentators see this latter as a a stairway, kind of like on a, a ziggurat, like one of the temples of of the Babylonian or Mesopotamian people. It, it's probably not the typical rung ladder that we think of. We might think of a a ladder going straight up, extending to to heaven and angels ascending and descending. But most likely, it's probably this this temple structure where there's a stairway going up to heaven. And he he sees this in his dream, and and some say that it it represents that that God makes himself known to Jacob in such a way where he's establishing his sovereignty over all of creation, and he's sending his angels out and receiving his angels to come and bring back a report. But, you know, one of the things that's significant about this is that it's a stairway that links heaven and earth. And God makes himself known to Jacob when he says... I am the Lord. This is the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God with his people. I am the Lord. And he goes on this combination of the Lord with the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. It extends to Jacob this covenant promise and the blessings that God has made with Abraham and that God has made with Isaac. And now it's been extended to Jacob. And those details are fleshed out in verses 13 and 14. The covenant promises are repeated there for Jacob. And it's the same, it's it's, it's almost verbatim from Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. Genesis 13, 14 through 16, where God comes to Abraham and he shares this covenant promise with Abraham. But here's the thing, this new alternative future with God. It won't be attained through manipulation as he's acted in the past, as Jacob has acted in the past, but now it will come through God's generous grace. It will come through God's covenant faithfulness. He tells him, The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. You know, one truth that we, we understand about God from this passage is the place of God's presence is sacred. The place of God's presence is sacred. Verse 11 helps us with this distinction. It says he came to a certain place. In that certain place of verse 11, he he has a dream. And in verse 16, it says he awakes from his dream and he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. In verse 17, he says, how awesome is this place? It's the gate of heaven. And in the verse 19, he names it Bethel. Bethel, the house of God. And then because of all of this, he erects a a pillar, and he anoints or consecrates the pillar, and in that moment he makes a vow to God. This is the same place where Abram made an altar to God upon entering the land when he left Ur. There's another truth that we understand about God from this passage. The truth is that his angels minister, administer protection over his people. God's angels administer protection over his people. Angels in the Old Testament are conceived of as looking after different nations and and their territories and then patrolling the earth. If you want to go and read more about that, write down Zechariah chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. But through this dream, God is reassuring Jacob of his protection. Even though he's leaving his homeland, God says he's going to bring him back. He's going to bring him back to the place of promise. You know, the New Testament speaks of angels as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it speaks similarly. Speaking of angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Together, these two truths point us to Christ. They point us to Christ because Bethel is seen as the gate of God between the heavenly and earthly realms. It's a sacred place of God's dwelling. It's a sacred place of his communion with man. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to this very passage. When he talks about the ascending angels or the ascending and descending angels on the stairway, he says it's, it's actually a picture of himself that he is the true axis between heaven and earth. In John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that he's the only mediator between God and man. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul even goes further to say, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then Jesus expresses later in John's gospel the divine reality of God's indwelling humanity. So we're talking here about sacred space, the place where God dwells. And in John 14, 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me... He will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come and listen and make our home with him. See, because of Christ, God no longer dwells in buildings or places made with hands, but within his people. The place of his dwelling then is sacred, Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We find the most profound expression of this reality in the church as God's people, together as a community of saints. And because of this, listen, we're exhorted in passages like 1 Corinthians 6 19, where Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Did you know that? You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or 1 Peter 1 16, you shall be holy because why? I am holy we examine the third image of Jacob's dream, a third truth that we learn about God, is that God reveals himself to his people and he pledges himself in covenant faithfulness. God reveals himself to his people and pledges himself in covenant faithfulness. First part of verse 13, he says, "And Behold, the Lord stood above it, or beside it, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. You know, in all of this, we can look on Jacob's story and then we, we, we can see with amazement. We can look with amazement at God's generous grace poured out on Jacob, a swindler, a manipulator, a deceiver. Whether or not we translate this as the Lord stood above the stairway looking down on Jacob or whether or not the Lord stood there beside the stairway at the bottom speaking to Jacob both translations have have some great implications but both of them truthfully speak about about who God is and about his character about about his attributes So God is seen as sovereign who sends out the angels, disperses the angels, and receives them back. Yes, that's true. Or or God is seen as the one who comes down the steps and ultimately foreshadowing Christ where Christ becomes incarnate and he comes and he identifies with us. Yes, that is also true about God and about Christ, about his incarnational ministry to his people. So either way, we understand what's happening here in this vision. It tells us That God is the one who's in charge and God is the one who is taking the initiative to come to Jacob. In verse 15, the Lord tells Jacob, here's here's the clincher. The Lord tells Jacob, I'm with you and will guard you wherever you go. God's telling him, whatever unexpected turns in life may happen, I'll be with you. I'll be with you, saving you from disaster and ensuring the ultimate triumph of what I've promised. Think about the transformation of God's presence in Jacob's story. Think about the transformation that it makes. He's he's a man running away from home who runs into God. He's a man afraid of his brother who then begins to fear God. A certain place becomes named Bethel, God's place, the house of God. A rock in the midst of the story becomes a temple. Night turns into morning. A Canaanite, Luz, becomes the house of God. When the dream is fulfilled, Jacob, the one who is the heel grasper, will become Israel, one who prevails with God in humans. You know what God does to transform Jacob? God God turns his ambition into virtue. He changes and transforms Jacob over a long period of time so that as he's coming back into this land of promise, as he's returning from Laban's house some 20 years later, God meets him there. And he wrestles with God. I want to ask you, is this not the same assurance we as New Testament believers have been given by Christ himself? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we're, we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone, behold new has come. No matter what comes to us in life, we're assured of God's sovereign care. We know the intimacy of a Savior who listened, who became our high priest who identifies with us in our weaknesses, who died for our sin to reconcile us to God and then now at this present moment sits at the throne of the Father interceding for us continually. This is the work of Christ, our mediator. And through all the tribulations of life, he's working for our good, transforming us, growing us, perfecting us do you know the incredible generous grace of God? Do you know the covenant faithfulness of God in Christ? The one who paid for your sin with his life so that you might know God's mercy and not experience God's wrath? Friends, listen. Worship is the right response to God's covenant faithfulness. Worship is the right response to God's covenant faithfulness. We see it in beginning in verses 16 through 22, the last half of the the section. You know, so often we speak and we think of worship as singing songs or maybe attending a a worship service, but worshiping God encompasses more than just the words that we might express through song. Worshiping God encompasses the whole of who we are. Worshiping God involves surrendering all of who we are to God. The first thing we notice about Jacob in verse 17 is that he exhibits a fear of God. It says, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? You know, in contrast to to Jacob's fleeing his homeland, he experiences a new kind of fear when he encounters God in God's place. Jacob's response in verses 16 and 17 to this theophany, this dream where God appears to him, shows the fear of God has gripped his heart. You know, and this is the natural human response to one who recognizes his or her sin before a holy, omnipotent God. It's fear. You know, this is what Isaiah, this is what Isaiah exhibited in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has the vision, right? He can't make it past the train of God's robe filling the temple. And what does he say? Woe is me. I'm undone, I'm ruined. I'm a man who speaks uncleanly. I live among a people who speak uncleanly. There's this realization of his utter sinfulness in the presence of, of a holy God. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who Mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea that Jesus is propagating here or speaking or teaching about here is that when we come into God's presence, there is a realization that he is holy and that that we are not. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, a fear of God means coming to terms with how sinful we are in the presence of a holy God. And then repenting friends have you recognized your sinfulness and light of holy god next we we see that jacob offers what i think serves as a petitionary prayer jacob makes a vow before the lord in verses 18 and 19 think about the context of of the vow he's in a distressed state he's running away from home because a death threat's been made on his life by his brother He's just received this unexpected revelation from God announcing his eventual return to the country, saying, guaranteeing him that he's going to arrive back safely. And so what does Jacob do? He pledges himself. When he returns to this place, that he will worship God. And when the divine promise of his return is fulfilled, he will worship God in this place. Listen to verse 20. He's acknowledging God's providential care verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And The Lord shall be my God. You know what he's doing here is he's, he's trusting in God's protection, acknowledging God's provision of food and clothing To petition God is to trust in him and to place our dependence on him in all our ways. This is what our petition, this is what our praying to God does. This is us saying that we trust him, that we depend upon him, that we can't do it on our own. One commentator, Gordon Winham, says, in his petitionary prayer, armed with the promise of God's continued presence, Jacob makes the Lord his God. He promises that when he returns to the land, he'll worship the Lord in that place, he'll venerate that place as holy, and he'll offer tithes. That's the third aspect of, of responding in worship that I want to end with this morning. Part of complete surrender and worshiping the Lord for Jacob is through his commitment of tithe. Verse 22, look at what he says. All that you give me, I will give a full tenth. You know, Jacob's promise of a tithe marks an important moment in his transformation. Bruce Waltke has this great one-liner. He says, he's no longer a grasper, but a giver. He makes this commitment to God. I'll give you a tenth. Jacob's imitating the actions of his grandfather, Abraham, when Abraham tithe to Melchizedek, the high priest. You know, from ancient times, people have recognized the appropriateness of giving God at least a tithe of their income. Malachi says giving God less than a tithe is robbing God. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says that tithing is less important, is a less important matter of the law than showing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You heard, you heard me right. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that tithing is a less important matter of the law than showing justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But listen, nevertheless, he says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Well, in the New Testament, the apostles, they drop the principle of tithing for a higher spiritual standard. Their higher spiritual standard is that God's people should first give themselves to God. Texts like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 help us to see this. And then after first giving ourselves to God, we return the material blessings that God has given us to those who bring spiritual blessing, to needy saints. The New Testament teaching on giving is not about the tithe, but listen, it's actually whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. And so the point that I'm making here is that Christians are to give eagerly and generously and cheerfully, the amount depending on one's level of prosperity. But hear this, the apostles never instruct or motivate people to give on the basis of an obligation to tithe. The management team right now is really nervous about me sharing this. One commentator, his name is Everbeck, he notes this. He says, there are just too many golden opportunities for New Testament writers to use the Old Testament tithe to persuade Christians, yet no one ever does. Our practice, though, should reflect the abundant generosity called for in the New Testament But all too often, get this, all too often Christians tithe in order not to give too much. And pastors teach on tithing to assure that people give enough. Well, this isn't that kind of sermon. But here's what Jacob is showing us. Jacob is modeling for us a commitment to say to God, God, what you have given to me, I will joyfully give back to you. Out of the riches that you have given me, I will joyfully give riches back to you. So this is part of Jacob's worship. And it ought to be part of the Christian's worship. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to his disciples, said, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But instead, store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worship involves all of who we are being surrendered to God's transforming work. And in the midst of our transformation, in the midst of this deep work that God does in our life, the question remains, how will we respond Will we grow angry with God? Will we lose hope? Will we distrust God's sovereign care? Or will we respond in worship? Do you know that God works through all our life circumstances to grow and to perfect our faith? He's at work in your life even now. So how is God transforming you? Is God using difficult situations, difficult people? Is he using tribulation in your life to do this deep work of transformation? Are your prayers reflective? Is your petitioning God reflective of your trusting in him? What are the things that you're petitioning God for in your life, believer? Do you know the transforming grace of God in Christ? The grace of God that comes to us and changes us from the swindler, the manipulator, the deceiver, to the one who is giving, the one who is trusting, the one who is surrendered to God's sovereign care, the one who changes us from being under the wrath of God to being under the grace and the mercy of God. Do you know this one who became the axis between heaven and earth and is our mediator who intercedes on our behalf? If you don't know this one, Jesus Christ, I want to offer you this morning the opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. It involves repenting of your sin, confessing Christ as Lord and surrendering to walk with him in all of your ways. And I would love the opportunity to pray with you about surrendering your life to Christ when the service is over. I'd like to talk to you about it. And so either me, you can find me after the service, or you can come to one of our elders who will be on this side of, uh, of the worship center by the cross, and you can speak with one of us about surrendering your life to Jesus. For the Christian this morning, for the Believer in Christ, how is God working to transform you even now? What's your prayer life look like? You petitioning God for things that you that He's doing? Are you trusting Him? Is, is your worship of Him deep? Are you trusting Him in the midst of life situations? I want to close us in prayer and invite you to respond this morning as the Lord He's leading you, maybe it's to spend a moment in prayer, maybe it's to sing out in in great rejoicing in response during the song, or maybe for you it's to come and speak with one of the elders after the service about surrendering your life to Christ. Whatever be the case, don't delay in responding to how God is leading you today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth and the hope of your word that even a wretched sinner like Jacob could be used by you in a magnificent way. Lord, thank you for the hope that you meet us even in the midst of our tribulation, dark and desperate times. And Lord, thank you for your grace that you shine upon us. Strengthen us now, Lord, to live for you. Strengthen us now, Lord, to to see how you are working to transform us And Lord, strengthen us to praise you in the midst of tribulation as you do this work in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?